0: Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Okay, I have an excellent conversation to share with you today. I'm very excited about it. I have on the podcast Julia Chalinor, Lisa Morrissey, and Glenn Mba, who are nurses that work in the SIOP PODC Nursing Working Group, And this group of people, not just these three individuals, but everybody in the working group is incredibly dynamic and they have done a lot to advance the cause of pediatric oncology nurses around the world. The topic today revolves around some baseline standards for nursing practice that they have established. And then a recent survey that they did regarding if the standards are implemented around the world and if they are not, then why not? And as you'll hear, these three just have a ton of insight into the important role that nurses play in providing quality care to patients. So I really enjoyed our discussion and learned a lot from it, and I think you will too. Unfortunately, Glenn has some technical difficulties with his internet during our call, and he drops out for a while, but he comes back for the latter half of the conversation and brings some valuable insight to it. And lastly, just to set expectations... This is the first in a series of episodes I anticipate doing with the nursing group looking at the baseline standards. And today, as I said, we're talking about their development and the recent survey that they did evaluating them. And in future episodes, we will discuss how the baseline standards are implemented, or if they're not being implemented, then how nurses can best advocate for themselves and their patients. So look forward to that pretty soon. All right, enough chit chat. Let's get to the conversation. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Lisa Morrissey, Julia Chalinor, and Glenn Mba of the PSYOP PODC Nursing Working Group. And they've recently done a lot of work to publish the guidelines about baseline standards in nursing care and global oncology. So we're going to talk to them about exactly what that means. So thank you, everyone, for coming on the show. Uh, If you could just briefly give us an introduction, who are you and how did you get involved in this project?
1: I'm Lisa Morrissey from Boston. I work at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm the nurse manager for the inpatient hematology oncology unit, and also the director for the global nursing fellowship at Boston Children's. And at SIOP in Cape Town a few years ago, a presentation was done about the baseline standards, and it was recognized that there really was a need to figure out what do the standards look like in low, mid, and high-income countries. How well are hospitals that are providing pediatric cancer care able to meet these standards? So we formed a task force at that time to figure out how we could sort of get a pulse on what this looks like throughout the world. So that's when I became involved in the baseline standards. And uh, as Julia will describe, there was a previous SIOP conference in London in 2012 where the idea of the baseline standards first came fruition. Um, And I was an attendee at
2: that conference as well. This is Julia Chaloner. I'm a pediatric oncology nurse. My university affiliation is the University of California, San Francisco. I've been involved in uh, international pediatric oncology nursing collaborations in low and middle income countries since about 1994, 95 across Latin America, Africa, and India mostly. And I was a at the pre-workshop to the SIOP conference in 2012, when we had eight nurses from low and middle income countries come and work together with eight nurses from high income countries with experience working in low and middle income countries to talk about educational needs and strategies in low and middle income countries. And that is when the idea to first create the baseline standards emerged. And I'll let
3: Glenn introduce himself before I go further. Hello, my name is Glenn Ba. I'm a pediatric oncology nurse at Bingo Baptist Hospital in Cameroon. I coordinate the activities of World Child Cancer in Cameroon, where uh, we support a pediatric oncology program at three mission hospitals in Cameroon, as well as um, helping bring pediatric oncology care providers together. In what has recently become the Cameroon Paediatric Oncology Group, which is now moving advocacy activities for childhood cancer care development in Cameroon, I got um, involved in the Baseline Standards Task Force in 2017 when the task force was formed to promote advocacy for these baseline standards, and we met, and decided, worked on how we're going to make them what the the baseline standards known, we're going to make them adopted. We're going to make colleagues all over the world to work towards their achievement. Yeah, so I got involved.
0: Great. Thank you all. So, yeah, let's go back to the beginning. Julia, you said you were there at the beginning when the standards were being formed in 2012. So tell us about that process. Um, tell us a little more about what motivated them and how you went about developing them.
2: Well, it started in the pre-conference workshop. Uh, supported by the Royal College of Nursing in the UK because SIOP conference that year, the annual conference was in London. And as I mentioned, we had a group of eight and eight from low and middle income country nurses, and also those with expertise from high income countries to try to explore what the educational needs and strategies were because our ultimate goal was going to be to try to make a curriculum that was across an international curriculum for pediatric oncology nursing in low and middle income countries. And we had a uh, done a pre-survey of, I think that I'm trying to look and see what the actual outcome was, the number of people who answered this. So we had 45 questionnaires that came before this, this meeting, the workshop from low- and middle-income countries. And it was quite an extensive survey about what their experiences were, what they thought the educational needs were, what their strengths were, what their gaps were. And then we worked on that in the the workshop. But for salient for this conversation is that and we have to give credit to the person who had the idea for the baseline standards from the start was Dr. Sarah Day, who is a pediatric oncology nurse with experience, a great deal of experience in Latin America, mostly in Central America, through her work at St. Jude at the time. And she said that when we got to the last day or so of the conference, the workshop, she said that what we really needed was baseline standards, because every time she was abroad, people were asking her, what is the recommended nurse staffing? What is the recommendation for orientation programs for new nurses who have been hired to work with children with cancer? And there was nothing that anyone could point to that could say this is the standard. The only standard Sarah had used before were the JCI, the Joint Commission International Standards for Nursing, but they were so generic and did not approach anywhere near what we needed for pediatric oncology nursing. So, We then created a tiny mini-group to draft the first set of standards, including nurses from high-, middle-, and low-income countries who had attended the pre-conference. Those were Sarah Day and myself from the U.S., Rachel Hollis from the U.K., Gabriela Bevilacqua from Argentina, and Enyo Basompra from Ghana. We then sent the draft to the larger group, members of the SIOP-PODC Nurses Working Group, and for revision and review, comments. And we're able to come up with a final draft of six standards, which we published in Lancet Oncology in 2014 under the title Baseline Standards for Pediatric Oncology Nursing Care in Low- to Middle-Income Countries, Position Statement of the SIOP-PODC Nursing Working Group. So essentially, they were created by, initiated by Sarah further developed by the initial draft and then really, I would have to say, crafted would be the appropriate verb and refined by the larger PODC nursing group to make them, what was difficult, to make them harmonized across because the difference between a low-income country and an upper-middle-income country can be significant. And so trying to write something that is applicable across these, this range of settings was the art in the science of what we came up with, I would have to say. And that is the, th- the short version of how they came about. And then there was a subsequent article that was more in-depth about, published in Cancer Control Journal in 2015 that went into further detail because the Lancet article was so short. And then we formed, tried to, began the advocacy And we had Rachel Hollis, who is a nurse in the UK, who took that over and went after professional nursing organizations, associations, societies. We looked at groups like SIOP to endorse. We asked for endorsement. One of the early endorsers was the Philippines Nursing Association. And I think as it started to take off and our endorsements came rather quickly, we saw that there was going to be global buy-in because there was clearly a global need and it, the usefulness of it, and it continues to just grow from there.
0: Awesome. So in the development of these baseline standards, it sounds like you got a group of, of experts together to talk through them and try to you know, formulate them in, in a way that's appropriate for both high-income and low-income settings. Uh, did you also have research that you were able to cite, or was there a lot of empirical evidence available to guide their crafting?
2: There's no evidence that we know of right now, and none, and certainly in 2012. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn and Lisa, but nothing that talks about, for instance, one of the core standards is the ratio between patients and nurses. Nobody's looked at that in low income countries. There's limited literature for high income countries, but given the difference in resources, it, that itself is not really applicable and difficult to use as a standard. So the, uh, additionally, the we know from our years of experience, and Lisa has substantial experience, especially in Asia where I am not, other than India, I've not worked a lot, that to talk about orientation programs. So what we really, the, I think the strength of the, the way these standards were created is that we had substantial input from the nurses living in low and middle income countries to help take their reality and what they thought was doable and what was reasonable. For instance, some of the standards, some of the criteria we wanted to put in, the high income countries said, we don't even do that. trying to find harmony in a place where we could all agree from low income country representatives like Glenn in Cameroon and up to uh, UK, US, uh, Scandinavia, that these are standards that we would all agree. The word baseline was very carefully chosen because this is not ideal situation. This is a minimal situation. So at least we expect that you would have this in place to deliver safe care to children with cancer. And I think we believe very strongly that this is required for safe not and appropriate care, not that this is what you need to give ideal care. This is the bottom line that you need to have.
1: And I'll just add to that as far as what's in the literature, there's a lot of clear evidence that nursing care is linked to patient outcomes. Linda Aiken is the most sort of famous researcher that's looked at things like nurse-patient ratios, the education level of nurses, the work environment where nurses practice, and has proven really more in the adult world that those factors impact things like mortality, infection rates, cost, complications, length of stay in the hospital. So there clearly is evidence that nursing care has a significant impact on how well or how poorly patients do, as Julia said, specific to pediatric oncology or even specific to any subspecialties, it is very limited. So, as as Julia mentioned, the standards were really established to try to try to put a, a benchmark on the minimum, something that Sarah Day says that I think makes a lot of sense is that, for example, hand washing, the standard is that you use soap and water to wash your hands. You may not have soap and water available, but it's still the standard. So these standards were, even though we know that in many countries, they're not achievable for reasons that are out of control of the nurses. There may be things like supply chain issues or the way that nurses are staffed in a country or how they're paid or what the government rules are around nurses. There's a lot of things that are out of control of the nurses that are actually caring for children with cancer, but these are the standards that we believe are the minimum requirement to provide safe, quality care to children with cancer.
2: I think, Lisa, and I'm glad you mentioned Linda Aiken because we rely on her work a lot. There's a study currently going on in Australia looking at nurse staffing and impact in low and middle income countries because I saw someone had published an, a small article saying they were going to do it and contacted them. So we are very much looking forward to and anticipating to see their outcomes because we talk about evidence-based practice in medicine, in healthcare, but we don't have the evidence in low and middle income countries yet to show that we can use to do these sorts of projects like the baseline standards. But I think Lisa's right when she says that even if you can't achieve them, the nurses need, a let's say, a weather vane. They need something that is endorsed by a scientific group. And is, it, we're still at the level of expert opinion, but it's better than zero, and it's well-informed and has been agreed upon. And to advocate to make a change in their unit, because Lisa also spoke about, laws and government regulations around nursing. So when we talk about scope of nursing practice, there are across the world very specific laws regarding what a nurse is allowed to do and not allowed to do. And so to make a generic statement is very difficult because in some countries they may not be allowed to give intravenous drugs. I happen to know there is a country where they can't give intravenous drugs, although they're doing it. So what is allowed, what is actually happening in practice, All of these things can change from country to country, but we believe as a group, Lisa and Glenn, you can say if you agree, that this has to be the bottom line to give safe care. These you can use for advocacy to go to your Ministry of Health or go to your hospital administration and say, we need these minimal standards, these baseline situation support in order to give safe care. Because there is nothing else. What else could they take? I mean, what are they going to point to? How are they? Otherwise, it's just the nurse asking for something that the hospital says, oh, you don't need that.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I will say for the listeners, Glenn unfortunately dropped out of the call. We're seeing he's having some technical difficulties. So we'll see if we can get him back in the call. So I think y'all have made a strong case that these baseline standards are important. They're difficult to craft because the contexts over which you're trying to apply them are so variable and the evidence that would directly inform, you know, the lower middle income country context is not available. So we've talked about them generally, but can you go ahead and just list out kind of what are the standards and say something about why each one is important?
1: So the six standards, the first one is acuity-based staffing plans and the this committee made a recommendation for nurse to patient ratios of a maximum one nurse to five patients in pediatric oncology units and one nurse to two patients for critical care and bone marrow transplant units. The second is formal pediatric oncology orientation for new nurses that includes specific learning objectives and theory and clinical skills, followed by three to four weeks of supervision by an experienced nurse. The third is a minimum of 10 hours per year of continuing education The fourth is acknowledgement of nurses as core members of the multidisciplinary team with inclusion of nurses in patient rounds and meetings relevant to patient care. The fifth is access to resources for the provision of safe care, including administration of chemotherapy. And the sixth is access to evidence-based policies and procedures to guide the delivery of nursing care. And along with that is funding for locally directed nursing research. So these were the six that were felt to be a comprehensive framework for the provision of safe pediatric oncology nursing care.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about the important clinical role each of these play in your minds?
1: Well, I think the the acuity-based staffing plan so the nurse to patient ratios, you know, we have seen some wards where nurses who are caring for children with cancer may have 15 to 20 patients that they're responsible in the daytime and up to 40 patients at night. So clearly, you know, it would be impossible for a nurse to closely monitor a child who's receiving chemotherapy or, you know, undergoing cancer treatment with patient ratios like that. The maximum of one to five was somewhat arbitrary, but felt that really, once you get over five patients, it really would not be possible for a nurse to uh, monitor for things like, uh, you know, sepsis or fevers or side effects of treatment. The education, the orientation, we also observed and heard from our nursing colleagues in low-income countries that very often nurses were hired. They would start on the ward and, you know, maybe follow an, an experienced nurse for a day or two, and then really be sort of left to their own without the background of the principles of pediatric oncology, how to handle chemotherapy safely, what are the side effects that you're looking for, what diseases will you be seeing on the ward, and what is the treatment for those diseases? So sort of that basic pediatric oncology nursing curriculum, many nurses were getting really none of that So the recommendation of a minimum of two weeks of that theory and clinical skills. And then, you know, nurses really should not be caring for children with cancer independently until they've been supervised by an experienced nurse who can sort of sign off on them and say, yes, they do have the skills needed to care for these complex, vulnerable patients and then ongoing education as we know pediatric oncology is always changing there's always new information and new treatments available and and nurses need to stay up to date with what's you know what's current and what are the most important factors to consider you know as time goes on the fourth standard acknowledgment of nurses as core team members this is something that Many nurses reported and experienced that they really weren't included as part of the multidisciplinary team. They may attend rounds, but their opinion was not really solicited. They did not have a voice in making decisions about patients. They were very sometimes afraid to speak up to the physician if they noticed that something was wrong or if they saw a mistake or even if they noticed that the physician wrote an order incorrectly. Nurses were not empowered to sort of use their voice and their skills to contribute to developing a plan of care for patients. And uh, Julia, I'm sure will expand on this, but resources for the provision of safe care Again, there's not a lot of literature specific to pediatric oncology nursing, but we do know that chemotherapy drugs are hazardous. Without the safe protection of, you know, wearing the appropriate gloves and gowns and masks, nurses are exposed to unnecessary risks to their own health. Um, and many nurses in low-income countries are aware of this. They know that chemotherapy is dangerous, but they don't have the ability to get the supplies they need to to protect themselves appropriately. And then lastly, the uh, access to policies and procedures, the way that we deliver safe care is that we use the evidence, we use best practices that are either proven through the literature or through benchmarking with other um, centers. And, you know, very often you would find that there were no policies and procedures available for pediatric oncology nurses. So, for example, administering a blood transfusion or giving chemotherapy, they would maybe just learn it from another nurse, whether it was right or wrong the way they learned it, there was really no way to to know that their practice was safe and appropriate. So these are some of the factors that, as I said, kind of came into, this is the framework that you need to provide safe care.
2: I wanted to follow up on what Lisa said, because I think if you look at the six standards, and I'm not going to go through any specificity, but I have to, Lisa's right. There's so much evidence about the effects of handling hazardous drugs of any kind without personal protection that that was truly based on I me. Mean, that standard was truly based on the evidence. And I think But we should, you could say that underlying all six of these, and I can't emphasize this enough is that we're not asking for ideal situation, but this is delivering safe care. Every one of these is safe, and I'm just gonna quickly go through from the top and, and follow up to what she said. So staffing plans are directly related to safe care. You cannot safely care for 20 patients with cancer on a night shift by yourself with a resident sleeping in another part of the hospital who's also supposed to be covering the NICU or the PICU or all of pediatrics, which is what we see commonly happening. So the nurse can't in no way, in most of those units, they don't run chemotherapy at night, but we know that Cancer care is not just chemotherapy. And as Lisa mentioned, it's a lot about the side effects. And so if a child is about to, is deteriorating, their health is deteriorating and they're going into shock and the nurse has 19 other patients, she or he may not even be in the room soon enough to realize what's going on. And I think that's where we see a lot of problems. The second one was the orientation. And this is documented, we documented this with a great deal of, or referred to a great deal of literature written about mostly in adult oncology nursing about the need for education, because this is also leading to rotating nurses off the unit who have been trained. What little training has been available that we had an international visitor for two weeks who came in, did some training. And then two months later you go back and not one of the nurses that was trained is still working on the unit, which we find is also leading to unsafe care because no generally trained nurse has the skills and knowledge to safely administer not just chemo, as Lisa mentioned, but and the, and transfusions, because these are pediatric units, and many of these nurses that have no training have worked only with adults. And so understanding how chemotherapy is dosed, what kind of problems children have, that cancer in children is completely opposite, different from cancer in adults, even the disease is different, and all the developmental issues require at least some kind of minimal education to provide safe care And then that education and training, as the doctors gear up and start using drugs that they didn't used to have in the past, and now they start to have them, and they start to do treatments that they didn't do in the past because they wouldn't have the capacity themselves to do it, they need to keep that education for the nurses, need to keep pace with what the doctors are doing as far as advancing treatment. And then acknowledging nurses as members of the core pediatric oncology team is a major challenge because of the cultural background and traditions in most of these countries, which is the nurse does not speak up. The nurse is to carry out the doctor's orders and this becomes dangerous when Lisa mentioned uh, doses that have been erroneously ordered, particularly when they're ordered by residents who've only been on the unit a few weeks. And uh, we always say that it's safer to have a nurse who's been there for 10 years than a resident who's been there for 10 minutes, because the nurse knows automatically that the she or he has not given this dose or has not done this procedure or this is not correct order or needs to check the protocol, but they need the ability and the backing of the team to be able to stand up and be that last gap, last stop gap before something goes wrong because of an erroneous order that the person, we all know, we all need to be double checked. The fifth one, which is not just PPE, but includes the isolation, the intravenous pumps, the supplies for hand washing, all of these things are safe care. And then finally, for the evidence-based practice, for years and decades, we have brought high-income country policies and procedures to low-income countries and said, you can modify these, but then nobody gives the nurse, local nurse time to sit down and walk them through the need for it. So you have a lot of nurses on each unit, for instance, changing an IV dressing the way they think it should be done or the way it's always been done that may not be the safest care or they're doing cleaning a child's wound in a way that is not standardized so introducing the concept of standardized care for safety and mentoring nurses to create an SOP or a policy based on their reality is really what we're driving at there so that the evidence is not from the high income country but is the evidence is based on evidence from what's happening and the resources available in a low income country do you agree lisa
1: yes yeah, I think that the it's it's not enough to just take a policy from Boston Children's or St. Jude and say here use our policy. It has to be adapted to meet the resources and the local culture, and also nurses need to see the va- understand the value of following a policy that is based on evidence, providing standardized care that is really based on best practices and not just the way that it's been done for forever or something like that.
2: Lisa, can you talk about how you, I think, always think of your project in Myanmar with the extravasation, how that, did did that come out of somehow linked to the standards? Because I think you worked with those local nurses to identify something you thought was really unsafe and that you worked to create a policy for that, didn't you? I mean, it's a nice example, I think, that pretty much everybody could understand.
1: Yeah. So in working with the nurses at Yangon Children's Hospital in Myanmar, the situation there, which is very common in low and mid-income countries, is that they don't use central lines for administration of chemo and other meds. Typically, it's because they're either too expensive or they don't have the resources to manage central line care, you know, things like fever, neutropenia or clots. So all their chemotherapy is given through peripheral IVs. And one of the things I noticed right away was that there were many, many extravasations. They were having three, four, five extravasations a month for a combination of reasons, one being that they had nurses and nursing students rotating through the ward monthly, many who had not received the appropriate training on how to administer a vesicant chemotherapy drug. How to look for set, you know, how to look for evidence of an extravasation. How to prepare patients and families before chemotherapy is given. So, in working with the nurse, the nurse leader on the pediatric oncology ward at Yangon Children's, we created a policy for administration of vesicant drugs, and she became the champion on her ward for preventing extravasations. She, we had the policy translated to Burmese. And she became responsible for training any nurses who rotated through the unit on how to give vesicants. You know, nursing students weren't allowed to do it anymore. Um, she had a kind of a core group of experienced nurses who developed this expertise. And then she started tracking and monitoring the number of extravasations. And over the course of three years, they went from an extravasation rate of about six or seven per 1,000 doses of chemotherapy to their uh about 0.8 now so they made a dramatic decline in the number of um, extravasations seen by their patients so that's you know an example of a a clinical scenario that really a lot of the these standards impact the rotation of nurses educational preparation availability of the appropriate supplies and equipment needed availability of policies and procedures so you can sort of see that a lot of the pieces of the baseline standards had an impact on this patient outcome that was really dangerously poor and they they were able to make some changes to improve on that situation
0: for everybody listening we just got glenn back on the line thankfully internet problems as inevitably happen with podcasts but welcome back glenn Thank you. I've updated you. Good to be back. Yeah, uh, we missed you. So having heard Lisa's experience with the extravasation project, does that resonate with you, Glenn, how these baseline standards function as a foundational baseline for safe care? And do you have examples where you've worked about how they function that way?
3: Absolutely. Uh, It quite resonates with me because I work in a setting where there is no, or there's little or no formal training for pediatric oncology nurses so a lot of nurses get into pediatric oncology without proper understanding of the toxic effects of the drugs without a proper understanding that some of these drugs even though they are intravenous medications they are not similar in, in their nature to so other intravenous medications like antibiotics which they have been giving in other units and so you know they just jump into this service and tend to discover these things after they would have occurred on patients. I see that as uh, labs which could be avoided if these baseline standards were adopted and implemented and even while they work in pediatric oncology we have situations where well in most cases actually nurses rotate between units so by the time a nurse gets to pediatric oncology for one month or two months, they're asked to move to another unit, which is just the time when they start getting used to these medications. They start um, learning the harmful effects, possible harmful effects of these medications and how to prevent and manage them. You know, they leave this is the unit and new nurses come in to go through the same learning curve over and over. And this is, um, I mean, the effect is always on the patient, unfortunately.
0: That makes sense. I really enjoy the way you framed these baseline standards as minimum necessary safety standards, both for the patients and for nurses. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know, if if for someone who is less educated in this area. If you describe these standards, someone would say, yeah, like it totally makes sense that this is what you need for safety. Like, I wouldn't want my kid, you know, being taken care of if these elements were not in place. And so, I I appreciate the way you all have framed this. And in the last part of this discussion, I want to go towards why they may not be in place already. I know you, the nursing group, has just done a survey asking this same question. So, why don't you go ahead and describe the survey to us and what your main findings were?
1: So, the survey, as we mentioned, there was a baseline standards Work group that formed to try to find a way to take a pulse on what the standards look like in different parts of the world. When we decided to do a survey, you know, some limitations, as with all surveys, it was a convenient sample. We put together a list of all the contacts that we knew, pediatric oncology nurses throughout the world. We came up with a list of uh, over 200 nurses and had a response rate of 129 responses. So, and 101 met the criteria. So, a little over 100 nurses responded to this survey. And what we found is that in five out of the six standards, there was an association between the income level of the country and the ability to meet the standard. So, for example, for nurse staffing ratios, our recommendation of one nurse to five patients on pediatric oncology w- wards and one to two in bone marrow transplant units and critical care. Across the board, there was an association between the income level of the country and the ability to meet that standard. So we had a very small N from low income countries. So actually combined low and low mid mid-income countries, and then they were compared against upper-middle-income countries and high-income countries. And the ability to meet that standard was very, very low in the low and low, lower-middle-income countries. So statistically significant that um, that was associated. We also found that nurses who worked in low- and low-middle-income countries, they typically was not an ICU available or a bone marrow transplant unit. But what we found is that hospitals that did have a pediatric ICU and had a bone marrow transplant unit, those hospitals were better able to meet the nursing standards. So sort of leads us to believe that if they have the resources to staff an ICU and then a bone marrow transplant unit, that they were better able to provide the appropriate number of nurses to care for patients. We also found that in low-income countries, low- and mid-income countries compared to high-income the presence of a pediatric oncology orientation program for new nurses, was. it was also significant that uh, that wasn't available as often. We did find that even in high-income countries, some of the key components of a pediatric oncology nursing curriculum, they were missing across the board. So what that told us is that there's a lot of variation within country, even in the United States. Some hospitals have a dedicated pediatric oncology ward. They have nurses who are specifically trained in pediatric oncology. Other hospitals in the United States, pediatric oncology patients may be mixed in on a general pediatric ward. Their numbers are low, and the nurses really don't get a great orientation. So this is even in in high-income countries, there is a lot of variation. As far as the access to resources for safe care, so things like hand-washing supplies, iv pumps the protective equipment for administering chemotherapy the presence of a chemotherapy hood to prepare a chemo again many in many areas very significant association we also noted that in low and mid-income countries nurses are much more likely to be responsible for preparing chemotherapy meaning that they don't have pharmacy support and then the nurses were not only tasked with preparing the chemotherapy more often in low and mid-income countries, but they were also less likely to have the resources to keep them safe. You know, the gloves, the gowns, the uh, the chemotherapy hood. So that was also an interesting finding. The one area where we didn't find significance was in continuing education across the board. Really, there was not the recommended number of continuing education hours. So again, probably a lot of variation by institution in this area. And then the presence of policies and procedures, this also was uh, significantly associated with the income level of the country. So a lot of these were things that we expected to find, but the, I would say what really jumped up the most was the inability to provide proper nurse-patient ratios in low and mid-income countries and the availability of the uh, resources needed to deliver safe care. And again, that really, we found a lot of variation in the ability to provide safe resources for handling chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Glenn, maybe you wanna talk a little bit about that because I believe where you work, the nurses are responsible for par- for preparing chemo.
3: That's right, Isa. The nurses like was articulated in the baseline standards publica- publication back in 2014. Nurses in low- and middle-income settings tend to have a more wider scope in paediatric oncology. Very often, they are responsible for reconstitution of chemotherapy, as you mentioned. They have other activities, including nutritional support. Sometimes they have to provide psychosocial counseling and um, psychosocial support to families in the absence or in the shortage of social workers and psychosocial counselors. So um, nurses taking charge of chemotherapy reconstitution is um, probably what you see in most low- and middle-income countries. And it is really a big concern that we found in our survey that in these settings, they are less likely to have access to personal protective equipment or generally resources to ensure their safety um, I mean, things like gowns for personal protection, gloves, masks for personal protection, and and um, reaching to equipment like biologic safety cabinets, which are essential for safe reconstitution of chemotherapy. That um, was one of the major concerns of this survey that we found.
0: Yeah, Glenn, tell me a little more about the experience with the nurses not having gloves and not having the proper safety equipment coming from a context where, you know, these things are very highly enforced. It sounds very foreign to me that anybody would face that situation. How do nurses tend to think about these safety issues? Like do they view it as unsafe or is it just part of the job? Are there efforts to bring these kind of concerns to administration and have it changed or is it just kind of assumed that this is part of what nursing is in Cameroon?
3: So I would put it in two parts. I would say the first part is on the part of the nurses themselves being aware of the dangers uh, they are exposed to when dealing with cytotoxic drugs. And this highlights the needs again of a formal orientation program and continuous education in pediatric oncology nursing practice because it makes them more aware of their own needs because they have to identify these needs and work with um, hospital administrations and, and other parts of healthcare provision system to acquire these needs for, for their safety. The second part is on the part of healthcare managers, considering oncology or pediatric oncology as not a priority, given that they, they are burdened with other healthcare problems mostly um, infectious problems. there is not sufficient attention given to the needs of the healthcare staff that are involved in um, care for children with cancer. and this goes to as, as well for the needs of care for other non-communicable diseases. So uh, it's a multifaceted issue and it needs to be addressed in, from both as, both perspectives. But I, I really want to highlight again the need for the nurses themselves to be educated. You know, there are some of the topics which the baseline standards publication recommended for inclusion in pediatric oncology, nursing orientation, and continuous education programs include things like infection prevention and safe handling of cytotoxics, and management of cytotoxic um, side effects of cytotoxic drugs, all of these things like chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting; those are things that further expose um, the patient as well as the nurses to hazardous substances. So the knowledge um, will go a great deal to to address this issue.
1: I would just like to add to that. I had an experience in Ghana where a team of nurses, we were doing an educational program and we were talking about safe handling of chemotherapy. And one of the nurses just spoke up and said how fearful she is for her own children. She said, when I go home from work, I don't have anything protecting my clothes. I'm worried when my children hug me when I get in the door of what they're being exposed to. So I think Glenn's point is really good that Nurses need the knowledge and they need the awareness, but sometimes it can lead to frustration that their hospital, you know, whether it's supply chain issues or for whatever reason the resources are not allocated to provide the appropriate resources for nurses, you know, it can lead to a very frustrating situation. And I think the other thing that Glenn, you may want to comment on as well is that, you know, in many low and lower middle income countries, most of the patients die, They the outcomes are not good at all. So the nurses are sort of bearing that psychological burden of witnessing children dying over and over. And I think as their knowledge increases on that, you know, cure is possible for childhood cancer, there's many pediatric malignancies that are very curable. And this will, this also sort of fuels that need for more information, better skills better resources, nurses always want to take the best care they can of their patients. And I think that as this advocacy grows for the right resources, education, materials that nurses need, it sort of will help empower nurses to say, you know, we need to do better for our patients.
3: That's that's correct, Lisa. Um, Now we are seeing in low and middle income settings, more children diagnosed with cancer. Um, There is increasing capacity there uh, for management of children with cancer. We are seeing uh, more physicians trained in uh, management of pediatric oncology uh, patients. We are seeing acquisition of more equipment to make blood products available, seeing more um, pathology laboratories being set up. So we're diagnosing more children with cancer. Um, The populations are getting more aware of the signs of cancer and the fact that cancer is curable, so the burden on the care providers at the level of the hospital or the cancer centers is increasing, and the exposure to cytotoxic is also increasing. and And I want to say that, uh, Lisa, one one important factor which contributes to better survival rates is supportive care. And this supportive care, the nurses play a major component, a major part of providing good supportive care to children with cancer. And they would not be able to do this without proper knowledge, without a strong orientation, uh, without continuous education. They will not be able to do this if they are being moved from one unit to another every time they get used to managing children with cancer. So, I think these standards really they really are timely, um, given the change that we are seeing in terms of more patients with cancers being diagnosed and being managed in lower middle income settings.
1: Yes and, and also the you know one of the Big issues in low and mid income countries is abandonment. That families, for various reasons, they just can't either have their child start treatment or they, they can't finish treatment. And nurses play such a big role in the education of patients and families on why it's important to complete a course of treatment. You know, nurses are usually the ones that are spending the most time with parents, and they have that. They're well-positioned to provide that education. But if the nurses don't have the knowledge, they can't pass that along to the parents.
2: Let me let me chime in there, Lisa, because I think as backup, I, and Glenn, you can tell me if you have, have seen this as well, but in many of the countries that I've worked in, low and middle income countries, the nurses have never received any training in how to do patient education or parent education and feel very overwhelmed when we walk in and say, well, why aren't you teaching the parents about these things? Even if they had the knowledge, the skills, there is a skill that you need to learn in order to impart that knowledge and to do the parent training and understanding what where the patient parent is, where the child is, what the developmental level is, what the literacy level is, what is the information that's critical for them to understand how to transmit that information in a way that they can understand it and use that information. And I think that's not something in most of the places I've been working that they, the nurses say to me, we never got trained in that in nursing school. I mean, we don't allow people to drive a car without learning driver's education and getting a driver's license. Somebody has to teach you how to drive a car. And yet we are willing to put a nurse on a unit and tell him or her to administer chemotherapy, which is 10 times more dangerous, I think. So there seems to we don't have a lot of data from low income countries. Lisa mentioned that about the survey, but we are missing nurse leaders in low and middle income countries because they're they're rotated off the unit. Some countries it's a punishment to be put on the oncology unit. In countries where in some countries I know where the nurses have said we're not going to mix chemotherapy anymore without protection, they've been told they'll be fired. And so we don't have the kind of occupational health protection of the worker, AKA in this case, the nurses in these countries, for them to be able to often even ask much less demand what we know are this what they need for basic safe care, which is why I think is another reason these standards are so strong because at least there's an internationally recognized now standard they can point to. I don't know, Glenn, could you speak to some of that?
3: The nurse's yes, ability
2: I w- to advocate?
3: Yes, I'd I'll, I'll like to start from the role of nurses in counseling patients. I agree with you, this is not something that is routinely taught in nursing schools, but I want to share the example in Cameroon where we have had nurses who have worked in the same pediatric oncology unit for 13 years, 15 years, they have, you know, developed these skills talking with patients. They have learned from physicians. They have learned from. Uh, we are lucky to have training partners who come in annually to provide some teaching. So they have learned all these skills and they have kept these skills. They have perfected these skills and they are using them so well to counsel the patients. I just want to say, in some settings now, as programs are being set up, there is um, a tendency to train the pediatric oncologist. So you would first before thinking of the nurses, so you would see centers where there's a trained pediatric oncologist, but there's no trained pediatric oncology nurse. Now, this, this highlights the importance for the nurse to be included as a core uh, member of the multidisciplinary team. I mean, all aspects of patient care, especially when it comes to diagnosis counseling and adherence counseling for these patients, I think the nurse has to take a, a, a very prominent role in this because they spend more time with these patients and they, they tend to know these families um, for long periods. Um, in, in, my, in my program in Cameroon, the nurses usually take the charge to call patients who have missed appointments, and they know these families. sometimes they if they call the father and they couldn't get, they would call the mother and you know they, because they they have been interacting with these people and they know them. So that's the one I sorry, I forgot in the other point. <laughs>
2: sorry, Glenn, what I was talking about was that in some countries, it's very, very difficult for a nurse to stand up and to point out things politically in the hospital that are missing or demand yes. that they get protection because i worry about the low and middle income the low income countries don't respond to surveys for very good reasons they don't have the time they don't have the internet they don't have a, an identified leader within pediatric oncology nursing and i know you're trying to work on advocacy for disseminating these standards but in some places it's very difficult for the nurse to advocate for themselves what do you think yes. about that
3: yes i agree that it is so difficult for nurses to advocate for themselves and for their own needs in lower middle income countries so this is due to i think it's this, this history of dominance of the physicians which i think is is everywhere but in lower middle income countries the nurses are not quite empowered so you see, if they have limited knowledge, they they lack the confidence, they, they don't properly understand what role they have and what power they have. Um, so sometimes you feel like they are given the role to be pediatric oncology nurses, but not equipped to properly perform that role. So um, sometimes they don't know that they could you know, ask for these things. Sometimes the the power structures within the hospital settings is not just set up for that. You have to go through the doctors and then you go through to the administration. And in this case, if the doctors and the nurses don't work properly like a team, then you don't have the information flowing from the nurses to management level. So these, I would say here, There is need for two adjustments. The nurses and the doctors have to, there has to be a good relationship between them as members of the same team, which, I mean, uh, the baseline standard four properly addresses that, says one nurse is to be core members of the multidisciplinary team. But also, I think it also calls for the need for nurses to be given a seat at the table when it comes to making management decisions at hospital levels or at um, health system levels, because when, um, nurses, the nurse's voice has to go directly to uh, where it should go and um, advocate for the nursing needs.
2: Glenn, do you think that nursing networks like Siop Africa, Siop Asia? help that, and so the nurses, the ones that can come from say low income countries can see how the ones in the upper middle income countries are doing it because we know that next year is the year of the nurse according to WHO and Nursing Now and the International Council of Nursing and nurses everywhere, even in high income countries are having a hard time getting to the table as you mentioned. And I think this is becoming an international push now To try to bring them up because we are the largest single health force group of all the professions, but I'm wondering what you think, if the nursing associations help and how they help.
3: Yes, Julia, the nursing associations really help, and not just nursing associations, but to be precise about pediatric oncology, I want to say an organization like like SEOP has done a very good job in addressing this this issue because at siop we have a nursing working group which brings nurses together from all parts of the world i will talk particularly about siop africa in siop africa we have a board an executive board and i am a nurse sitting at, uh, on the board of siop africa so there is that nursing voice right there at the table and this network has uh, you know Created a platform where nurses can come together and discuss their challenges from their various countries, their various units, and you know seek advice from what one another is doing to address similar situations. And then also it provides it provides a, it provides room for mentorship exchange, not only with um, low with other lower middle income countries, but also with high income countries. We have had the opportunity to. Collaborate to exchange to to discuss with very experienced nurses from high-income countries like Lisa. I'm thinking of nurses like like um, Rachel Hollis from the UK. These are nurses who have worked in pediatric oncology for over three decades, and and they have a wealth of experience to share. Um, some of them had worked in situations that were more deplorable than what we in low- and middle-income countries are facing now. And, you know, they're sharing their experiences, how they overcame that, how they've been able to achieve some of these standards in their settings, and how they've been able to contribute as nurses in transforming the care for children with cancer.
0: That's excellent. We are coming up on time, I and mean, we've actually gone a little over time. So I think we'll begin to wrap this up. But I appreciate this entire discussion, one because I was able to just sit back and listen to you guys talk about the difficulties that nurses face, but two, I think you've made a very strong point that nursing staff is really the kind of final common pathway to how patients receive care, and if the needs of nurses are not being paid attention to, then that significantly degrades the quality of care that is possible to be given to the patient, no matter how skilled the physician is. So again, looking at the baseline standards from this perspective of safety and of assuring that the nurses are able to provide care to the patients, I think y'all have done a really, really good job of articulating what needs to be present for quality care to happen. So I want to commend the working group and all that you've done so far. I think it's really been a big step forward for nursing care and for the care of pediatric patients in general. So thank you guys for your work. Thank you, Mark.
2: I think your summary is I think your summary is brilliant, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Can you send us the wording you just used? Because, Lisa, that's and Glenn, that sounds like the opening to an article.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Don't you
2: think, really, the way you just put it was so elegant. And and sometimes it's hard for us because we know it so well. So it's good for us to have feedback from you. The The wording you used was so elegant for us because that's the message we're trying to get out. We don't always know how it's received. So I'm thrilled about that.
0: Well, I think it's being received quite well, at least to me, because everything you're saying resonates very, very deeply. So in the closing time, is there anything else you guys wanted to say that wasn't said yet?
2: No, I, I echo Lisa's uh, gratitude for the opportunity to share in this podcast. I really appreciate you including nursing.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've talked for an hour and we honestly haven't even scratched the surface of what the nursing working group is doing. And in a future episode, we're going to have on several others from the working group to talk more specifically about the implementation of the standards and how to kind of put the wheels on the ground and make this thing go. So be looking forward to that. Uh, that will soon be popping up in your podcast feed. But until that time, I want to thank you, Lisa, Julia, and Glenn, for talking to me and for educating us about the needs of nurses around the world. Thanks thank so
2: you much. Mark. Bye, guys. <laughs>